we are going to pray right now, and then we're going to dig into the Word. And I pray that the message this morning, the, the focus is not going to be so much on just grasping knowledge. What I want, because we're going to talk about the Word of God. Last week we talked about worship, this week the Word, next week prayer. But I want us to, I want us to gaze into the Word and see the beauty of the Word and what God has it, why God has it for us. And it's entitled, The Power and Authority of the Word. So let me just open in prayer right now. Can I do that? Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit in a measure that this morning we would be able to not just understand your word, but that as your spirit counsels and comforts and encourages and enlightens the eyes of our heart, that, Father, we would behold the glory of your word. And that, Father, in beholding that glory, it would make us hungry. It would draw us to you, sitting at the feet of Jesus every day, longing to hear from you, to be equipped for every good work that you have for us. So, Spirit of God, would you be our teacher this morning? Use these... Uh, words of mine to be able to help us understand and walk in the truth that we're about to learn. Would you do that for us, Father, in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, we're in this series, The Earmarks of a Healthy Church, and Powerline desires, as God chooses, for us to be healthy, and wherever we are, every local church of Jesus Christ to be a healthy church. And we're just going to touch on some earmarks. Last week, we looked at worship. This week, it's the word. Next week, it's prayer. And the re- I'm grouping these three because these three, sometimes we call them disciplines, whatever we want to call them, they are our way, not just to learn about God, to learn facts about God, though these are important, the knowledge of the truth, so important. But you see, the knowledge of the truth is more than just an intellectual grasping. The knowledge of the truth, for example, that we're going to look at today, is this dynamic that we cannot completely understand because it is spiritual in nature, but the word of God captures our heart, draws us into intimate relationship with the God that created us to be in fellowship with him. And so worship does that. Worship engages our heart with this God. (coughs) Excuse me. Prayer, then, is our ability to communicate with him, and the word of God is his love letter to the church. But it is more, as I say, than just understanding this amazing God. It is now this invitation and this spiritual dynamic that I am not, that I myself do not completely understand. There may be pastors out there that do. I'm not sure. But there is a spiritual dynamic that we're going to discover along the way that engages our heart so that the word of God that you hold in your hand is not just some other book. There is this spiritual dynamic in which it reveals Christ to us, not just to our minds, but to our hearts. And it, it, it has the power and the ability, the power and the authority, which is the rightful use of power, the power and the authority to ignite something in your heart that engages us in this intimate relationship with this God that created us. And so this is the power of the word. It is far separated from any other book. I want you to think of the most impactful book that you have ever read in your life. Most impactful book. The word of God is far above it. That book may have spoken about Jesus, but this book right here that we're going to look at just probably about eight to ten verses this morning. We're not going to camp out heavily in one particular passage the way I usually like to. We're going to look at a number of them. But this book 
engages our heart because it is living and active. And it does something in your heart when you read it and when your heart is opened to it that no other book can do. And if other books can manage to open our hearts a little bit, the Word of God lays it wide open. And so our desire this morning is to discover the power and the authority of the Word of God. When I was 14 years old, I've shared my testimony with you. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I was exposed to the Jesus People Movement. My sister and her husband were uh, leaders in that, in a Baptist church, in which they would have 300 people from all various churches around the city gathered in their basement, and the Spirit of God was healing and moving in spiritual gifts. There was teaching. There was worship. Um, but there was an aliveness there that I had not experienced anywhere else. I'm not saying it wasn't anywhere else. I had just not experienced it anywhere else. <clears throat> I was impacted by this um, <clears throat> between the ages of 10 and 14. When I was 14, though, my older brother sat me down, <clears throat> and he gave me a little tract, and it just simply said, am I going to heaven? Now, I want you to know that when we're sharing the gospel, yes, the gospel leads us to gaining this inheritance of heaven, but it is so much more than that, okay? It is a relationship with the God that created us. And so, but this question was very simple, am I going to heaven? Find out inside. And it had 17 questions. And I thought, I love tests. Now, I do, I truly do love tests. That is if I know the answers. And I thought I knew the answers. <clears throat> am I going to heaven? Well, of course I'm going to heaven. I grew up in a Christian, in a Christian home and I go to church and I'm checking, kept the 10 commandments. <laughs> Okay, honor your father and mother. Well, you know, mom and dad wasn't in the room, so I checked that one off. You know, love your brother or your neighbor as yourself. My younger brother that I beat up regularly to keep him in line, he wasn't in the room. I checked that one off. Kept holy unction. Man, whatever that was, I'm sure I had it. Checked it off. And then finally, you know, the other box, box 17, other, I thought, you know, you know cross my T's, dot my I's. I checked it. I had every box checked off. Ugh. Uh, uh. I was so proud of myself. And then the very next verse was this. It was the word of God. And it said this, by grace, you are saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works. And, and, and when I think about that verse, I, I want to tell you, I still think those words were in bold in my Bible. I really think that. Not by works, so that no one can boast Mike, you see all 17 of those boxes and how you boasted in those? You see, this is by grace, through faith. And it is not by works. You cannot do enough good works to make God smile upon you and just tickle his heart so much. He says, oh my goodness, how could I ever live with, without Tim or Patty or Daniel or Rose? or Jean? I gotta have them in heaven because they are so good. Ain't gonna happen that way. Mike Curtis, you're a lost sinner, and you can never do enough to counterbalance that. It's going to have to be by my grace. Washing all of that filthy, scummy sin from your life. Not by works. And, and I'm sharing this with you because the Spirit of God ignited something in my heart. See, I had heard the gospel so many times. I went to a Bible 
preaching, gospel teaching church. And I'd heard these things before, but still I believed in my heart that if I was good enough, and so when I, when I read that, it was the first verse, and I can still remember checking all of it, and I'm smiling, yep, 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 not by works. And I just paused right there. It's up at the bottom of the page. I can, on the left, I can still picture it. And I still think those words were in bold. And as I read this, the Spirit of God began to convict me deeply and show me through his word that Mike Curtis in himself was completely inadequate. I stood before God spiritually naked and bankrupt. And so I had to lean on him. I had to look to him. And the Bible says in Romans 1, turn to Romans 1, the Bible says that in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed from heaven. And this gospel is n- that speaks of this righteousness, it's not my righteousness, but his, his, so that when I believe in him, that now is mine. So when I stand before God, he's not looking at Mike Curtis's puny, pathetic righteousness, which are like filthy rags, but he sees Jesus' righteousness. So that look at verse 16. Look at the, this is powerful church. It says, I am not ashamed, Paul says to the Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The King James says, it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. In other words, the gospel by the Spirit is what births this change in our life. Without the word of God, I cannot be saved. Without the revelation of who Jesus is, I, am, I remain separated from God himself. From this righteousness that's revealed in the gospel. And so, for me, it is that gospel that brought me into salvation, by his spirit, of course, that brought me into this relationship with Jesus Christ, so that by faith, now my sins are washed away, by grace, through faith. I want you to know that apart from the word of God, no man can be saved. And it is the word of God by by the spirit taking it that punctures and penetrates the sinner's heart. My heart, all of my supposed righteousness that Isaiah says are like filthy rags. And that truth showed me the inadequacy of Mike Curtis and the full and complete adequacy of Jesus and what he did for me on the cross and the resurrection. And that truth penetrating my heart ignited something in me that Jesus used the term born again. Paul says you're a new creature in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. And that happened to me when I was 14. So I'm, I'm telling you that the very first thing we need to understand is that the power and the authority of the is the power and the authority of the word of god to save and apart from it i will refer, i would forever remain a lost sinner separated from all of life 
that is only found in God. And I'm just going to tell you right now that if you are in that place of lostness, in which the word of God has yet to penetrate your heart, today, don't be ashamed. Believe. The gospel is the power of God unto your salvation. I want you to turn to John 8. Church, can I just confess something here that the book of John is so profoundly simple and yet so profoundly deep. Of all the Gospels, now this is my pathetic opinion, but as I read it, the Gospel of John is the easiest to understand and the most difficult. And when I read it, oh, I got this, I got, whoa, he says what? Oh, I got, I got to think on this one. Man. And, as you, and you constantly pause, and, and you can grab the, the essence of it, but when you start plumbing the depths, it's like, I don't see a bottom to this. And the next time I come into it, okay, I understood it last time, and oh my goodness, as I get down to what I understood, it goes deeper, and it goes deeper. I think one life group spent, what, 10 years studying it? <laughs> I'm exaggerating, not 10. It was two years, okay. And you got up to chapter what again? Seven, okay. And tell, remind me, how many chapters are there in Okay, I'm just kidding. It, it, so what they did was they started studying it. And I remember talking with Zach. He said, you know what? I don't know if we're really getting it. So I, we're going to go back to the beginning and we're going to get a running start. And we're going to go through it again. <laughs> and, and you know what? They could go through it again and again and still get more. Well, I've said that a lot. Justice, I want to read something to you. John 8. He says this in verse 30. There's a, there's a, a crowd of Jews, not just Pharisees. There are some Pharisees. You read that in verse 13. But there's a group of Jews. And he says this, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. And I want you to underline those two words. In him. They put their faith in him. They didn't just believe what he said. They put their faith in him. And in putting their faith in him and trusting him and pledging, if you will, their allegiance to him, they were saved. Something of this spiritual dynamic happened in them listening to what Jesus said and it was ignited in their hearts. And let me read to you the very next verse. To the Jews who had believed him. I believe this is a separate group. This is not the group that had believed in him, but to the Jews that merely said, wow, I like what he is saying. How fascinating. It sounds true. And they believed what he said. Now listen to what he says to those people. Not those who believed in him, but to those who believed him. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're going to come back to that. 
this very same group, amongst them who believed him, they answered him. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Can you hear their attitude? Because they are not free and they are still slaves. Because they do not believe in him, they only believe him. But I tell you right now, they're having a real struggle believing him on this point. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, we, we watch some movies, and maybe I shouldn't mention the movie, but um, it's very popular in our day to hear people say in the movie, you know what? If you just stop lying, things will go better for you. Because you will, this is what they say, they quote, because you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So in essence, if you just tell the truth, you'll be free. Can I tell you that is not at all what Jesus means here? First of all, let's back up. It says right here, it says that if you hold to my teaching, to this group that believes, you know what? Hey, if you hold, because he wants to bring this group that believes him into the group that believes in him. So Here's the truth. If you hold to. This word meno in the Greek is translated remain or abide. You know what? Hey, if you abide, if you don't just believe on the surface but sink your roots, if you will grasp a hold of not just the hem but the entire garment, if you will, if you would but truly believe in me, he says here, If you abide in my word, that's when you're going to be my disciples. If you choose not to abide in his words, consequently, you will not be his disciples. Now, who is it that knows the truth? The very next verse. Then, in abiding in the word, being my disciple, then, then you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Wow. So I've got to be his disciple in order to be set free. I've got to be a disciple in order, or that's equivalent to truly knowing the truth. See, knowing the truth, and and you can actually do this, There's several places. I think it's listed a minimum of eight times, knowledge of the truth or knowing the truth. It never means an intellectual apprehension, an intellectual apprehension of the truth. Never means that. It always means an engagement of the heart. To know God doesn't just simply mean to understand God, but to believe in him and be surrendered to him and therefore engage in this relationship with him. And so Jesus is telling them that if you're going to be my disciple, then you're going to need to abide and sink roots into the word and let that word impact you. That's how you become my disciple. It's not just knowing about Jesus or believing that Jesus is telling the truth. You've got to abide in what he's saying in his teaching. And if you're his disciple, here's what has happened. You have known the truth. 
you're his disciple, then that means you're, you will have known the truth. You will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. And the, the, the people gathered around who believed what he was saying balked at this. They're sarcastic. They're, they're, their words are, they got an attitude. What do you mean that we, you're telling us that we're going to be free? That means, because we can think logically, that means we're slaves. Now listen to how Jesus responds to them. Verse 34, I tell you the truth. You want truth? Here's the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, he could have paused there, and he could have said, poll question, how many of you have ever sinned in your life? Can I just see your hand? Now, the Pharisees were among them. Maybe they would have put their hands in their pockets if they had pockets. And, but others, yeah, I'm, yeah, I've sinned. All of you who just raised your hand, you are a slave to sin. Ouch. Because you're a slave to sin, he says, now, is this, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son, the son, not just you as a son, the son sets you free, you are free indeed. You see, as a slave to sin, I am invited now to become a son. And Jesus is making this concept of being a son and belonging to the family to being my disciple. So let me tell you, when you're my disciple, that slavery to sin is broken and you are now freed because that's part of your inheritance as a son. Question though, someone would raise their hand if this were permitted and raise their hand and said, okay, well, you know what, Jesus? I, I'm part of that group that believe in you, that believes in you. But can I confess there are times in which I still feel like a slave? Help me understand this. Now, I'm, I'm moving away from text at this point. And I'm just going to suggest to you, Jesus, he's not skirting the truth. He told us up front, I'm going to tell you the truth. So the truth is that as a lost sinner, you were in slavery. And if you could just picture in your mind for a moment, sitting in a prison cell with your hands and ankles shackled to the wall and the prison door locked, you are enslaved. And that analogy then holds true for someone who is in slavery to sin. Jesus then speaks truth, his teaching, his word, the gospel. And that gospel that is the power of God into salvation now breaks those chains on your wrists, on your feet, and he unlocks the door. You are free. And you walk out of the door and you look around and you are free. And yet... The dinner that they served you that evening that you hadn't finished completely, you begin to smell it a little bit more. Mm. I'm, I'm a little hungry. And you go back into the prison and you sit down and you start eating that meal to finish it. And there you are sitting in the cell. And you know what? It feels like you're still a prisoner. And so I get that. When we get, as a Christian, when we get tripped up in sin, it can feel 
as if we're still a prisoner, a slave. But church, what is the truth? Jesus says, I will tell you the truth. And the truth is, you are a son. And if today you're feeling like a slave, I want to tell you, you are not a slave anymore to sin. You are truly free. It still feels like you may, at times, you are a slave, but you are free. So what do you do? If you're still a slave, then if you try to get up, you can't. But as a born-again believer, a son of God, a daughter of God, set free, you can get up and you are unshackled and you will try the door and it will open for you and you can walk out. There is, by grace, through faith, is the, is the motto of our entire life in Christ. It, it comes from him as we look to him. And so what I'm going to share with you now is the power and the authority of the word to live for Christ, to live in Christ. I can remember when I had given my heart to Christ, my brother who had just shared the gospel with me and shared that tract with me said, Mike, you, you need to get into the word every day. Get into the word every day. And he said, then you're going to be like a tree planted by streams of water. And it's going to nurture you. Okay, so I started reading the Bible. I probably did it maybe four days a week. Within a year, I was doing it seven days a week. And I, I, I would just, wow, I'm, I'm reading my Bible like every day. This is, I'm, I'm, I've got this discipline down. And I went to a conference, I'm not going to mention what the conference was or who the speaker was, well-known at the time, and he challenged us, meditate on the Word of God day and night. Do this, and you will prosper. So I thought to myself, wow, and he even gave stories, wow, you know what, if I just read my Bible, I had a lawn business at the, uh, you know, a little bit later, and I was still thinking this way, if I just read the Bible, my business will prosper. If I just read the Bible, if I meditate, not just read it, but meditate on it, I'll do well in school. And the man gave examples of this from his own life. But there was a problem here. And before I tell you what the problem is, I want you to go to Psalm 19. Because at that point in my life, I just gave my life to Christ, I was reading the Word, and I began to adopt this mentality. Study the Bible, you'll prosper, you'll succeed. But there was something missing in this so that it caused me to treat my, that discipline of reading the word superstitiously. So that, now maybe some of you have felt this way. Wow, you know what? I didn't read my Bible today. I'm going to have a bad day. And if you ever think that way, you are caught up in this and you're missing something. I don't read my Bible so that I'll have a good day. Now, you know what? It, it, it gets my frame, frame of reference, gets my eyes on him. It, it sets my heart up so that I will follow him. But I'm, I'm going to get into that in just, a, a, just a, one more moment. Look at Psalm 19. I want you to see something beautiful here. Paul, excuse me, Paul. <laughs> oh, yeah. Psalm 19. David, who only lived a thousand years before Paul, 
He wrote here, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy, joy to the heart. What brings joy to the heart? The law. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on a second. Mm -mm, mm -mm. I live under the new covenant. I don't need to hear this. The law kills. The law doesn't revive the soul. The law isn't something that I delight in. Well, you know what? I think maybe you need to go back and read the New Testament. I may be stepping on some of your theological toes right now, but the law is as beautiful in the old covenant as it is in the new. It's just that for the Christian, it, it speaks of how to walk in life because it reveals the holiness of God and it even reveals the love of God. Do, do you see this? When God says, do not murder, it's a revelation of his love because he loves you he, in essence, is saying anyone who takes your life, they deserve death. Whew. Anyone who steals your property, I'm coming after them mm -mm, because I love you. You see, the law reveals God's love, not just his holiness. It reveals both. But you see, as a lost sinner, it doesn't speak life like that because in my soul, I am not right with God and I I'm still shackled to the prison wall and I'm trying so hard to do this and I fail every time, at least in some measure. And there's this angst, this spiritual separation. I feel like Paul tells us, Paul, not David, but Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that there is no commandment that can bring life. So, Let's get this right, theologically. For the sinner, the law of God speaks death. But for you and I, it allows us to walk in the way of God. And for David, who was a believer in Jesus Christ, and let me even say it this way with new covenant terminology, David was born again. David was born again. You're born again in the old covenant, born again in the new covenant. Your life still is dead in sin and has to be resurrected, but that resurrection is still to come in Christ under the, the old covenant, but you still have to be born again. Spirit of God didn't live in you, and I'm going to get off into some theology here, I don't mean to, but David was born again, and he says as he looks into the law, oh, this revives my soul. It doesn't bring him from spiritual death to spiritual life. Only the gospel, only faith in God can do that. But for the Christian, it revives my soul. It refreshes. It encourages. It speaks life to me. In that way, it restores my soul. As Meredith said from quoting Psalm 23. It is his joy. They, the commandments and precepts of God, they're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. For you as, as believers, even the law of God is sweet. Because you, and this is the prophecy of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36, the spirit of God will dwell in you and he will prompt you and even empower you to walk in that law, the commands of God. 
I'm not shackled by the law. It's not something, I, ugh, I just want, ugh, it's law. No, because I am now empowered, set free from bondage to sin, and I am now empowered so that I am able, by God's Spirit, to walk in this. And I delight in it. Do you not delight in obeying God? It doesn't earn me salvation, okay? We're going to get to someone in just a moment, though. And so the law is something that he says, by them your servant is warned. Hey, careful. Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and curses. And he says, in keeping them there is great reward. Now turn with me to Psalm 1. Let's look at this thing that was left out that caused me to treat the word of God superstitiously. So we've looked at the power and authority of the word for, to, to be saved. Now we're looking at the power and authority for me to live for Jesus or to live in Christ, this life in Christ. This is what the word does. And the focus here is the law simply because, well, they didn't have the New Testament. David didn't even have the prophets yet. And so he says this. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now, I want you to look at that. And for me to say that if you simply meditate on the word of God day and night, you will prosper. What am I missing? Look at that. Look at verse 3. What am I missing? I'm missing something so crucial. Because I don't read the Bible and God says, wow, Mike read his Bible today. I'm going to bless him. But rather, as I read the word of God, something happens and I become like a tree planted by streams of water. The word of God nurtures my spirit. It encourages me. It gets my focus again on the God that rescued me. It reveals Jesus to me. And who is the very one I'm seeking to have this relationship with. And it feeds my spirit. It revives my soul. It restores my soul. And this is what the word of God does. And as I meditate on it, not superficially, not trying to just gain an understanding, but seeking to walk in it, what happens? You will produce fruit. Do you see that? Your fruit, you, how does it say it? Yield fruit in season. And it will continue to nurture you, and you will not die on the vine, so to speak, whose leaf will not wither. For this person who is being nurtured by the word and it's igniting more day by day this looking to and sourcing, if you will, God himself, it now empowers me to produce by his spirit what's called the fruit of the spirit. It now enables me to do loving things, to walk in joy, to be a peacemaker and not constantly stir up dissension, to, for me to not just look to my own needs but to the needs of those around me, to be humble, not arrogant, and to walk in that. See, that is fruit. And when you walk in that fruit, that's when you prosper. When God spoke... To Joshua, Moses was gone. 
And now Joshua was to lead what, what you've heard me say, the Joshua generation. This is a generation that actually dared to believe God and believe in him. And because of that, they were able to walk in this victory and take the land. And if you were to look at Joshua 1, there is a very same promise that is given to him that we just read about. And he says, do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. So you're meditating on it. You're speaking it even so that you will prosper. Is that what your Bible says? No. So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will prosper and be successful. Now, this is a very specific word for Joshua. And what that meant, very specifically, I'm sure it meant other things, but it means you'll be able to take this land. You'll be able, if you just meditate on the word and allow it, and I'm, these, these are my words, allow it to stir you up to source God himself, to look to him and find your strength and ability in him and in him, in him alone, you will be able to now be empowered to actually obey and do what you just read. And when that happens, I'm going to open doors for you. And specifically for Joshua, it was taking the land. But you know what, Joshua? If you don't look into the word so that the word changes you and stirs you up to rely on me, you will forget the law of God, the word of God, and you will forget me. And Deuteronomy 8 is all about what happens when we forget God. But if you choose to do this and obey me, you will take the land. God created this world, this universe, with a created order. We have sinned and constantly ushered in a curse upon the earth and upon our very lives. Sin breeds cursing. Righteousness breeds blessing. So God's created order. He says, look, here's how you're going to need to live. Stop killing one another. Stop stealing from one another. Stop lying. Don't do these things because that is outside of this created order. So I'm trying to be so practical here right now. Church, it is not because you read the Bible that God will prosper you. It's because you allow the word of God to change you, to live in, a, in God's created order in a way that he meant for you to. So if you just borrow money willy-nilly and go into tremendous debt, be so careful because if you go outside of that created order, don't expect prosperity. You will now become a slave to your lender, and good luck with that. So, much more, of course, that I could say with that. I'm just using it as an example. Got to check my time here. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The last thing I want us to see 
the power and authority of the word for preaching and teaching. First, we saw how the word of God is necessary for salvation. Then we see how the word of God is necessary for me to live before God in this relationship that honors him. Now we want to see the importance of it being preached and taught. I learned early when I gave my heart to Christ and God began to give me a love for his word and start changing this superstitious reliance upon the word and rather see it as that living water that I was receiving as a tree planted by that stream, okay? And as the Lord opened opportunities to lead Bible studies and that kind of thing, to realize that these Bible studies were truly not what Mike Curtis thought, because at that time, Mike Curtis truly knew very little. He still knows very little, but back then, I just didn't know it quite as well. And as I studied the word, I loved to share it with people, but it wasn't about what I thought. And so we, as a group, we would dig in to the word. As I eventually felt a call to being a pastor, then I, I eventually went to seminary, not a commandment of God to do in order to become a pastor. It's something that God laid on my heart. I chose to do that and spent four years in the process. And while I was there, we took a hermeneutics course, how to study the Bible, and a homiletics course. And homiletics is how to preach. And it was so ingrained in you. A sermon, listen to this. A sermon is not a TED Talk with a scripture verse. I, I love watching TED Talks. But TED Talks are all about what the person knows. And some of it's kind of interesting. I like to listen to many of them. But is that what a sermon is? Is a sermon rooted in man's wisdom? And oh yeah, here's a scripture verse to kind of make it a sermon. Kind of like dousing it with holy water, except we're using a scripture verse. Let's make this, let's make this talk a, a sermon, because here's my scripture verse. Now, I, I'm sharing this with you because in our day, that is how some sermons are. God has called us to be in the Word and let the Word be the focus because it's the Word of God and not Mike Curtis's Word that is the power and the authority to bring life and empower you to walk in everything that it says. So we look at it as our source and the Spirit of God teaching us and empowering us. But for Mike Curtis... So if my words are not in line with the word of God and actually don't flow from the word of God, I do not need to be standing up here. And anyone teaching the word, it has to be rooted in the word of God and not in man's wisdom. Now, I'm not suggesting how long sermons should be or anything, but this is, this is just basic. We must, the word of God is that power. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, this is a caution for our generation, church, because we live in a day, and I'll name it, within the emergent church, in the emergent church, they are a group of people that say they believe in the Word of God, but they disregard verses concerning hell, and they twist them. With regard to certain sins, nope, put a cultural spin on it, 
and they come up with a different interpretation. With regard to the cross, there are those who help lead this movement and people in this movement, which is kind of hard to define anyway, and I'm not saying that everybody in the emergent church fits this. Many do, and many of the leaders that people look to, they would call Jesus, bear with me, penal substitutionary atonement as cosmic child abuse. Penal having to do with punishment, substitutionary, meaning Jesus took my place. Jesus, Scripture is very clear on this, Jesus took my place and he was punished for me. That is the only reason why I can be forgiven. And if we lose that truth that's found in a word, and you may have heard this theological term, propitiation. That's what we're getting at here. If you erase the whole teaching of propitiation, where is the gospel? What is the gospel? It is emptied of its power. And yet, in the emergent church, it is frequently taught that this, that Orthodox Christians teach? No, this is cosmic childhood. How, could, how would any father want his son to be punished for someone else? And they disregard it. Now, I'm mentioning this to you because, church, we live in a day in which people come to the word of God. And they will even, I've heard a man, I'm not going to mention his name, I've heard him say, you know what, I think, we study the word of God more than those who believe in Orthodox Christianity. And so they call themselves evangelical. But they are simply, they simply believe in liberal theology dressed up to sound conservative. That's all it is. Another one of their tenets is that everyone's going to heaven. And I saw a man do exactly what I'm going to read to you right now. I read a blog of his, and I was horrified. The church, I, I am not just wanting to stand up here and be mean and throw punches theologically. We live in a generation that does this regularly. So let me, let me mention what this is, okay? 2 Peter 3, verse 16. He, referring to Paul, you can back up the next verse to see that, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. This is an apostle, and he's saying some of what Paul writes, it's hard to understand. Which ignorant and unstable people distort, they twist as they do the other scriptures to, listen church, to their own destruction, and may I add to the destruction of all of those who follow their teaching. This is why the Word of God, preaching the Word of God is so important. Just because there are three different ways to view this verse or any verse doesn't mean that they're all legit or valid. Well, he interprets it that way, so it Maybe it's right. Well, if it's contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture, then it's not. So I read this man's blog. I'm not going to mention who he was, but as I read it, his premise was supporting what's called universal salvation. That is, everyone is going to heaven, whether you believe in Jesus or not. And he took five verses, not excuse me, not five verses, five phrases 
five phrases from the book of Romans to prove his point. And I read his article and I thought, wow, I've not seen this. And I looked the verses. And I'm going to confess to you, I was so angry because I thought the people who don't even look up those verses but just look at the phrases, they will be sucked into this. And they'll st- I don't need to believe in Jesus. I can continue to live in my sin. Maybe it would be a little bit better and advantageous for me in this life to believe in Jesus and become maybe a little better person. But you know what? I can live in my sin. I can sleep with this girl without being married to her. I can steal, kill. I can rob. It, it doesn't matter Because I'm going to heaven. This theologian pastor just told me. I feel so comfortable now in my sin. I don't need Jesus. When I read through those verses, two of those verses... If all you had to do was simply read the entire verse, that's all you had to do, and you would immediately know any, you don't have to be a smart person. You you didn't, It it was so obvious. All you had to do was just read the entire verse, and you would immediately know that he was, he understood it and took it out of context and twisted it. Two verses of the five, you needed to read the just the immediate context, the verse before it and verse after, and you would immediately know. He's obviously not saying that everyone's going to heaven, and it was so clear. And there was one verse in Romans 5 in which you had to read the entire chapter. If you went back to verse 1 and read through to the end of the chapter, it would become very clear. But this man chose not to do that, and he twisted the Scripture to suit him. And, And here's why in our day this is so prevalent. Because there are some hard things in Scripture, church. There are things like hell. There's things like God's judgment. There's things, things like certain sins. God, why would you call them sins? It just doesn't seem right. Because my definition of love says you should not send, send someone to hell. That's forever, God. That does not seem fair. That does not seem loving. Now, I'm saying this because... What they are saying is rooted in and only rooted in their feeble understanding of love. And apart from Christ and his word, that's, what, that's all I've got, church, is this feeble, stilted understanding of love that's emaciated, but it's the best I can do. Because my, my mind has not been regenerated and opened up to God's love I, I, I must define love by what I read here. I don't define love and then come to the word of God. I will erase hell. You better believe it. Because this unregenerated mind says, ah, because that means I'm going to hell. That means all of these people who are rejecting Christ and living in sin, they're going to hell. That can't be. And I recently read an article and I was amazed with how crafty a person was and how they erased hell. And I, was, I just thought, wow. You can truly make Scripture say anything you want. But if you really look at the text and you're fair with it, you would never, ever walk away with that man's understanding of hell. You wouldn't. His view was hell was just something that we experience on earth. It's never at after you die. 
And so, church, church, I'm sharing this with you because we live in a generation, and can I say that this has been the predicament that every generation has faced, not just us. It's just on different doctrines, perhaps, that preempt the gospel of its power, that's leading an entire generation astray. Church, it is not arrogant or proud to look to the word of God and to fairly rid yourself of bias and come to the word of God and let the word of God teach you. You will exercise your personal understanding and interpretation, but in all fairness, studying the word, I'm going to say it this way. If we get the gospel wrong, we're completely wrong. We are a lost generation. And I'm going to suggest to you that the gospel is utterly and absolutely clear in Scripture over and over and over again. And hell is a part of that. God so loved the world, church, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We must understand this teaching. And so... I'm going to suggest to you that it is only through the Word of God that you will ever find your way in this life. Without the Word of God, savage wolves rise up within our midst. Paul warned the Ephesian elders and lead them astray to their destruction and all who follow after them. This is so important, church. We must be rooted and grounded in this book right here. The scriptures, the teaching of God's word, it is inerrant, it's infallible, it brings life, it speaks health, it, it, it leads me into this intimate relationship with God because I am empowered by the Spirit speaking to me and I'm transformed by it. May God grant us that humble spirit that we bend the knee before God's word. And with everything in us, we approach it with humility and set aside our personal biases and definitions, human definitions of things like love and let God define that. Father, I just ask, make us a people of your word, who truly know Jesus, because we know your word, who walk in your strength, and who are like that tree planted by streams of water, and daily we're, we're gaining nourishment and strength, and daily we are able by your spirit and word to produce fruit. God, I can't do this in myself. I know myself. I am so weak. And I just ask you, Father, would you please, please help us understand the gospel. And then, Father, throughout our life, continue to speak truth, the truth of your word, and constantly coming to it with fresh humility and teaching us again, because we might get that wrong, but God forbid we should get the gospel wrong. Please, Father, make us a people of your word, and to walk in it. 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen.